Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 36 of the Book of Eov. Yosef Elihu Vayomar. Elihu continues his uninterrupted responses and says, Wait for me just a bit and I will explain things to you because God still has words to say. Now, this sounds pretty egotistical as if Elihu's words, or at least Elihu thinks that his words are equivalent with God's words. Now, while it's true that we've seen some youthful confidence from Elihu in his introduction to himself in chapter 32, I think here Elihu is doing something else. What he's doing is cluing us into his coming argument, the argument that he made back in chapter 33, which is that God does talk, and therefore we have the word Eloah Milim, God has words. But he doesn't talk through words as Eov was expecting. He talks through premonitions and visions first, and then through physical disciplining as he described, as Elihu described in chapter 33. What's new here, though, is that the focus is not on the individual who is spoken to, quote-unquote, by God, either via visions, premonitions, or via discipline. Uh, but he's talking here about kings and leaders who will also be spoken to in this way. Before we get um, uh, to the argument, however, Elihu has more to uh, say, apparently, on his introduction. By the way, the word Qatar, Zeir, Achaveka, they're all Aramaic uh, words. Achavecha, we've seen quite a few times uh, uh, in this uh, in this book, but Qatar is definitely a, a rare word. I will raise my knowledge, or cast up my knowledge until very far, which means I will publicize it far and wide, and I will set my maker as righteous. That is, my words will prove theodicy, which is really the point of the book. Ki omnam lo sheker milai temim deot imech. Indeed, my words are no lies. They are true or unblemished knowledge for you. And here is the first assertion that Elihu wants to make. Hain el kabir velo yimas, kabir koach lev. Behold, God is mighty. He does not reject things. That is, he doesn't reject them for no reason. Mighty is the strength of his heart, or really the strength of his knowledge or mind. In chapter 9, this is a reference to what Eov said there, because he described God as having two attributes, two distinct attributes, related but distinct. One was that God is an amitz koach, and the other that he was a Chacham Levav. For Chacham Levav, he gave examples of God's omnipotent creative activity. But for Amit's Koach, um, strong or powerful in strength, he gave examples of God's omnipotent destructive activity. That is, just like God creates, he also destroys totally. What Elihu has done here is he's combined these two attributes together as a Koach Lev, the wisdom to create the power to destroy, they're all really part of the same attribute, which is evident from the fact that the bad and the good. He does not allow the wicked to live and he gives justice to the needy. That is the destructive side of God and the creative side of God, the sustaining and the destroying. These are essentially two sides of the same coin. Lo yigra vayoshivem la Vaigbahu. 
He does not remove his eyes from the righteous. And here, with the words, V'et Malachim I'm sorry, Elihu is going to shift us into uh, focusing on the kings or leaders who have been captured. So, and for kings on thrones, which I think really means who used to be on their thrones or who should be on thrones, he will enthrone them forever. Vayoshive means he will sit them down in their seats forever and he will elevate them. Now the word Vayoshivem also carries a, in poetry, it's, it's very similar to Vayeshivem, which means he will return them, Vayoshivem, and he will seat them in his throne. So poetically, you sort of get uh, two bangs for your buck. And even if they are, if they are imprisoned with chains or captured with the cords of affliction, actually, um, from ancient descriptions of the way uh, things ran in the ancient Near East, uh, these cuneiform tablets that were unearthed in the eight, uh, 1800s. We know exactly how these uh, kings were led away in uh, in chains. Uh, a hole was punched through the cheek of the king, and an iron cuff, like a handcuff, although in this case a jaw cuff, was threaded through the skin and through the jawbone, that is where the jawbones meet, and then out the other side through the mouth, creating a circle around the jaw. Uh, the king was then dragged in humiliation uh, and usually chained to the gates of the conquering city so that everybody can mock and scorn the fact that the king was was brought away in chains. It's a pretty gruesome uh, uh, way they used to do things. So here uh, is how Elihu explains or really justifies this kind of harsh discipline. Vayaged lahem pa'olam ufishehem ki yitgabaru. In this way, he, God, has told them, the kings, of their actions and of their sins when they have become too many or perhaps Yitgabaru means too egregious or maybe both quantity and quality which means it's true they've been dragged away and the worst possible discipline but you have to look at what they have done in their misuse of their powers so we return to Elihu's argument in chapter 33 that punishments are God's way of talking to humans so that they can repent but the scope is now focused on leaders um, and in the next passage, he'll actually return. In verse 10, he'll return to a similar metaphor that he used in chapter 33, the opening up of one's ears. Vayigel oznam lamusar vayomer ki yishivun me'aven. And he opens their ears to discipline. And musar really means uh, teaching and instruction, but it also carries the sense of discipline and and um, and and harsh punishments, and he speaks in order that they repent from wrongdoing. Um, you know, it actually works very nicely in English as well, because the word musar or liaser means to discipline. But on one hand, it means to teach somebody discipline. But if a person doesn't learn discipline, then one is disciplined, that is physically punished. But it's not just a punishment; it's a punishment in order to teach discipline when words simply don't work. Im yishmu vayavodu yichalu yimei. If they listen and they and they uh, do, which means they do what they have to do, then their days will end in goodness with good things, and their years will end in comfort. Note that the Hebrew asa to do is the same as avad, like here via avodu in Aramaic. So when the pasuk says yishmau via avodu, that's the same as saying naasev nishma, which is what the children of Israel said when they accepted God's covenant and commandments. So essentially, what it's saying is, if this king comes back to the way that God demands of him, then everything will go well. His life will end in peace. I mean, not 
not soon it will end, but it will end in a normal amount of time, or even a good amount of time, and uh, he'll live to uh, see a happy end. V'im lo yishma'u, b'shelach ya'avoru, v'yigva'u bivlidat. And if they don't listen, they will go by way of the sword. Note the play on ya'avodu, in a good way, in the previous sense, and ya'avoru, in here, in a negative sense. And they will die, v'yigva'u bivlidat, with no understanding. And here's a worse possibility. V'chanfei lev yasimu af. Lo yishavu ki asaram, the irreligious, the profane of heart, really of mind, that is people with, with, with incorrect profane thoughts will respond with anger, that is after they're captured, rather than saying to themselves, oh, you know, I've done something wrong, how could I uh, fix things? They, they get angrier, which of course is a hint at uh, what's been going on with, uh, with Eov. They will not cry out for help when he, God, imprisons them, ki asaram, when they are imprisoned or disciplined. Tamot banor nafsham, and in such a case, their no, their souls, their selves, will die in their youth. And I don't think he means so much in a specific age, although he may be may mean at a young age. But he also means the way a noar has a certain lack of wisdom, a lack of understanding, as opposed to a zakain. Vechayatam bakedeshim, and their lives will die among kedeshim. Now kedeshim is clearly parallel to naar, which indicates a lack of wisdom, but a kadesh is actually um, uh, some kind of temple prostitute that was used in a deviant ritual behavior, which we won't explore right now. It's specifically uh, prohibited in the Torah. Um, perhaps what he means to say is that the captured kings, after being chained uh, and, and bound away, so then they were used in this uh, rather uh, uh, deviant way in the temples of the conquering city. On the other hand, it may just be a linguistic oddity. Um, that is, it may come from the word the Hebrew word zoneh, which means to stray, like we say in Shema, lo asher atem zonim which you stray after your eyes. But the word zoneh also means Prostitute. So it could be that when you, when the author was working, as we've seen him work a lot in both Hebrew and, Param- and Aramaic, he may have gone from the Hebrew word zoneh to the Aramaic version of that word, and then when he translated it back to Hebrew, it came out the word kadeshim, um, uh, which would be uh, kind of an Aramaism for the word zoneh. But, um, you know, I leave it up to you. The basic sense is the king will uh, will be in the worst of straits and the most ignorant of places because instead of turning to God for salvation after seeing this discipline, he reacts to the discipline, the physical harsh harshness of the discipline with more anger towards God. Now, why is Elihu focusing on captured kings and leaders? Why is the focus away from the individual on to the leaders? Um, if Eov is the focus of our story. Uh, first of all, as he said in chapter 34, that is, Elihu said in chapter 34, God treats kings just like he treats the individuals. And chapter 34 was all about how uh, how Eov felt that uh, kings and, and, and kingdoms are, are treated unfairly and essentially Elihu's, Elihu was saying, no, you're wrong. That is, the discipline is the same, or the approach of disciplining a king is the same as disciplining an individual. The only difference is that because the sins of kings is usually much greater in scale, both in quantity and quality, than that for commoners, then, uh, for instance, uh, oppression, subjugation, uh, corruption of government, so therefore the punishments are different as well. But the basic principle of God sending punishments in order to fix uh, a problem is still the same. 
Um, but there may be another reason why Elihu is focusing on the idea of kings here, which I mentioned before. There is something very Jewish about Elihu and his name and his style and his approach, um, as if he wasn't speaking to all people, as the book purport, pur- purports to do, but as if he is speaking specifically to the fallen and exiled Jewish nation after the destruction of the first temple. If you remember, King Yoyachin, the son of King Yoshiah, was led away in chains by Nebuchadnezzar II, by Nebuchadnezzar. So perhaps Eliyahu wants to leverage this universal discussion that we have in Eov on theodicy and make it a more specific one that his Jewish audience is dealing with after the fall, uh, after their fall. Now, if we translate, in the next verse, if we translate the word ani as poor, then it would seem that Eliyahu would be returning to the individual sufferer. But, sufferer. but from context, you'll see that the better translation for ani here is not a poor person, but an afflicted person, a person who's being tortured or treated with affliction. Uh, and the focus, in fact, remains on this imprisoned king. Yechaleitz ani ve'onyo v'yigel balachatosnam. An afflicted one will be released uh, from his affliction as their ears are opened with the oppression. That is, God oppresses him with this discipline, with his affliction. If he opens up his ears, then God will free him from his affliction. He will drive you away from troubles. The word lahasi usually means to instigate, but it really means to pull somebody from one position to another position here in a positive sense. It'll spring you from jail. Uh, getting back to the verse, no chasm will gape beneath you and your table will groan with rich foods. Dashen are fatty foods. Um, this uh, fine table full of all the best things may uh, be actually a literal reference to a king's return to wealth and glory and banquets, but one also senses a metaphor, especially because Eov was criticized for his uh, overindulgence uh, by Elihu, or at least I think he was. Um, we could say like Rashi, which is that uh, what it means is that the person, the king, the captured king, will be returned to good things in the world to come, not in this world, but in the world to come. But that would really change the tenor of Elihu's argument to mean that really you're not going to survive this disaster, but at least you'll have a good life in the afterlife if you do tshuva. I mean, it's possible, but I, I don't think that's the sense of it. Uh, it could be the king's set table is simply a way of describing uh, a general success, and I would like to raise another possibility which is that a set table for the king in Psalm 23 probably, in my opinion, probably refers to a table set up in battle. Sometimes that metaphor appears in Tehillim. A set table for the king means that all of his armies are are well organized and he's able to protect himself and his people. Um, but I'll leave that up to you on how to define this uh, metaphor, if it is a metaphor. V'din rasham maleita din umishpat itmochu. From the ta, you, in the word mileita, it's clear that Elihu is now speaking directly to Eov. He's giving him direct advice rather than just general philosophies on how God works. And I think it means, even though you have been filled with the wicked person's sentencing, that is, you've been treated like a wicked person, and you've got that judgment against you, dinu justice and order and, and, and true justice, so to speak, will come to support you. That as long as you hold on to God, then eventually things will work out. It could also be, you know, more of a criticism, which is um, uh, that because you filled yourself up with, like an evil person would, with this anger that he spoke about, you know, you better stop that and you better support yourself with with real justice. Uh, although, as I said, it could be that the, just the piece of advice is, even though things look bad now, 
um, eventually things will get back uh, to uh, to where they should be. Ki chema, or if you do tshuva, things will get back to where they should be. Ki chema pen yisitcha b'safek v'rav kofer al yatecha. Here the word yisitcha is used again, but differently. Don't let all that harsh anger lead you astray. That is, he's really focusing on on, on what he believes is 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 Eo's problem. The the friends really sort of hinted, because they had a hard time finding his sin, that Eo's sin was in the way he accused God. That's not really where Elihu was going. He's saying that, you know, you must have had another sin. Maybe it was the haughtiness, the indulgence in wealth, whatever things that we looked at in previous chapters. The anger itself was not so much a sin, but it was a rejection of the instruction that God was sending through that harsh discipline, and therefore not so much as a sin, but sort of a willful uh, continuant continuation down the path, rather than coming away from, uh, rather than learning the lessons that God wants to, uh, that that uh, God wants you to get. The next verse by Elihu seems to respond to Eob's earlier question, which was, why must God treat him at all this way? That is, why is God paying attention to such a lowly creature? He's treating him as if he's a yam or a tanin, as some supernatural creature. So God says, Would your salvation be laid out without troubles and without, that is, and with every Herculean effort with every great effort on your part, which means not only if you weren't forced into the corner, if you weren't pushed into the corner, would you have not have fought back and really been pushed to the point where you have to fix things that were wrong with you. But the very fight itself, this ma'amatse koach, which of course is a play on uh, Eov. Eov called, called God, as I mentioned above, an amitz koach, which was sort of an omnipotent, destructive person. And Ali was saying, no, you you need to be a ma'amatsi koach. You need to fight with all of your strength because the fight itself is cathartic. That is when God pushes you into a corner and you have to pull yourself out of the corner, that is part of the healing process which pulls you away from the sin that got you there in the corner in the first place. At least I think that's what Elie was saying. Note, by the way, that I translated the word shuacha as a short form of yeshuacha, meaning your salvation, uh, and not from the word shua, which means to cry out. And now, in the next verse, um, Elihu makes a response to Eov's call for death. Uh, if you remember, he called for death in chapter 4, and in many other chapters, you know, God's just leave me alone, all I want to do is die. So he says to, e- to Eov, Al tishaf halayla, la lot amin tachtam. Don't desire the night. Don't desire the upending of nations. The second part of that sentence, the, of course, night in the first part of the sentence is a metaphor for the ultimate darkness, the choshech of death. The second part of the sentence hints uh, again to the possible audience of Elihu's. That is, that he may be referring to the Jewish nation in exile. Um, so therefore he's saying, just as the individual sufferer, like Eov, in the first part of the sentence, wished to be out of, put out of misery, he should not wish that. So to a nation which is causing the kind, which is in the middle of the kind of suffering that one had in the time of the first temple, af- I'm sorry, after the structure of the first temple, when they were shackled away and brought out into, uh, Bavel and, and had terrible things done to them, 
uh, and it wasn't the last time that the Jewish nation had terrible things done to them. So therefore, there's also this desire, there's this potential to say, hey, I'll just stop being Jewish, I'll forget about my identity, because if that'll make the suffering stop, that's all I want. And what Eli was saying is, is you, you can't go down that path. Be careful, don't turn to the bit wrong thing. And what I'm, what he means by the wrong thing, the aven, is the desire for extinction, for personal or national suicide. Because the only reason you want it, you desire it, the reason why you're choosing is that, is because of your suffering and affliction, which means if you were of a rational mind, you would never want such a thing. And now Elihu, having told his audience that justice will come and suicidal thoughts should be rejected, he will apparently have to answer the question why. That is, why should the person hold out? For what what is it that justifies me holding out in hope of some future salvation? So his focus now, Eliyahu's focus, will be, of course, on God's greatness, on his ability, and specifically, it'll focus on his ability to bring rain. Now, keep in mind that rain back in the days of uh, no drip, uh, you know, without drip irrigation and bottled water and, and, and all kinds of water facilities, especially in an agrarian society, the fact that it rained was a sign of God's love for the people of the land. And it still is. We still have prayers regarding the rain because because famine is still a problem, even in this, even in this modern times, technological times. So uh, Elia will give an example of God bringing the rain and his power to do so, as his power to set things on this world uh, the way he wants to. Behold, God is supreme in his strength, i.e. he is omnipotent. Who is like him in his instruction? Note the word moreh, to teach or to instruct. Like the word Torah also means to reign, like yoreh uh, umalkosh. And that will hint at the, metaf- at the metaphors or at the examples to come. Who can call him to task? For his ways, who will say to him, you've done wrong? So first he attacks it from one side, which is God is exalted, ultimate, omnipotent. So who can really tell him that any specific act he's done is not right? But now he's kind of turning the tables and saying to Eov and to us, remember how you used to feel about God. Remember that you exalted his works, the works that people wrote songs about. The trick here is, that is, try to remember the good old days when God was the cat's meow that used to say, wow, God, I love that guy. I mean, he's I, I love praying to him. I love worshiping him. He does everything that uh, he does. All great things. Kol Adam Chazuvo Every man looks to him that is looks to God. Man gazes from afar, which is to remember the times when this was true. Hain El Sagi Veloneda Mispar Shanav God, behold, God is exalted beyond our understanding. The number of his years, meaning the span of his existence, cannot be calculated, cannot be understood. And now he begins with the metaphor, well, not the metaphor, but the example of God's control over uh, rain. When he brings down the water drops, rain and rain is refined into mist, which are descriptions of God's greatness. Asher yizalu shechakim your afu alei adam rav. In that the heavens or the clouds, shechakim could either be clouds or heavens, trickle down upon uh, uh, on many men. Af im yavin mifrasei av tishuot sukato. Can one even understand the spread of storm clouds, the thunder of his sukkah tishuot? The word sha'on means to the storminess, the loud, the thunder. 
the word sukkah means covering, meaning the clouds would cover the earth like the roof of the earth, much in the way that schach covers a sukkah, a temporary hut. Hein hayam He spreads his light on it, that is on the clouds, and he covers the roots of the ocean. Perhaps this is a, refer- a reference to the covenant of the flood, uh, the rainbow, which came out to make sure that the ocean would never overflow and destroy man. Or maybe since we're talking about, um, if you remember, he, he said, think back about all the things that you loved about God that people used to write songs about. So he might be talking just about these beautiful, powerful, aesthetic uh, visions, sights, uh, such as the way sunlight permeates the clouds and the way it hovers over the ocean and merges with the ocean on a beautiful, clear day. I, I think that everyone at some time of their life has seen a sky where where he just has to think, God is some painter, or what a palette God uses. Uh, and it could be that that's what Elihu was referring to. Remember when you said, wow, God is amazing. Kivam yadin amim yitain ochel lemachbir. Because with these, with rain giving clouds, God judges the nations. He gives sustenance to the masses. Which means that people correctly think, that is, people correctly think that, that the, the clouds and the sunlight and the storms are part of, are, are an aesthetic a representation of God's might, of his awesomeness. But it's an also, but all of those things are also a representation of his, of his practical might, as his might as a ruler of the world as well. A very difficult pasuk, but I'm going to translate it in this way. With a double fist, kapayim, or two kafs, he covers the light and he commands it to shine. In Malachim, when, Elia, when Eliyahu was waiting around for a cloud, so, so his uh, servant said, I see a small cloud which was described the size of a kaf or palm size. So perhaps this means massive clouds, which are more than one palm uh, big, and therefore they obscure the light. But on the other hand, on other times, he lets light shine through them. And there are other translations. Perhaps it means he throws light with his hands, meaning uh, lightning. Um, uh, but uh, I think the sense, of course, is the same. That is, God's control of the massive forces which demonstrate themselves in the rain and storm process. Yagid alav reo mikne'af al ola. He commands it to thunder, uh, the word teru'ah, reo, to thunder out, with jealous anger, mikne'af, against sinners. Um, also, very many translations for this verse. I went with Amos Chacham, who says the word mikneh, it does not mean flocks of sheep, but it comes to the word kana with an aleph, which means to be zealous, like a kana and a, and a kina and a kanai. Uh, so the sense would be that is sometimes the rains are for a blessing, but other times the rains are rains of anger, rains of curses and rains which ruin fields and cause floods and wash away people and things. This is like uh, very similar to the prayer which is said on Sukkot uh, which talks about the two types of rains which we're praying for. We pray. We pray that good rains come and we pray that torrential or, or, or destructive rains stay away. This is not the end of Elihu's description of God's exaltedness and the way it is witnessed through his control over the powerful forces of nature. Um, and it is not the end of how Elihu wants, expects himself to understand how to respond to God because of all this awesomeness and how he expects Eob to be affected by it as well. However, we've gotten to the end of the chapter and next chapter we will continue in this vein.